Hello. Yes. Hey. Yes. <laughs> okay. So that's good. And welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of. Uh, no, can't say that. Uh, <laughs> Evelina and her biggest Peter fans. <laughs> Evelina and a ghost. <laughs> the crypt keeper and a skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> Please, let's not get the Crypt Keeper involved in this. <laughs> You're right. He's too sacred. He needs to be. <laughs> he needs to be kept in my sanctum sanctorum. You're always saying protect the Crypt Keeper at all costs. I am. That's true. And welcome to the final episode of 2022. The vinyl episode. Yeah. Well, there's a more important milestone we're celebrating with this one. Is it? Episode 69. It sure is. We made it. (laughs) Raise the banners. The critics said we couldn't be done, but here we are. I did have a brief uh, existential crisis the other day. I went and looked at our listenership statistics. Mm -hmm. I was like, why do we do this? (laughs) Because it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it is fun. But yes, thank you to those who do listen. Uh, I would implore you to tell a friend if you like the podcast, because, you know, sometimes podcasts just disappear and no one ever knows what happens to them. (laughs) Not once, surely, with such an active social media presence as ours. (laughs) So tell a friend if you do enjoy the podcast. And thank you for listening. Thank you for making it to the The final episode with us. Darn, you're fine. I don't know why I was afraid to say damn there. <laughs> yes, as I know from being at our home, our mother doesn't listen to this podcast. She listens to the one that she only has one child on. <laughs> she, well, she likes sports so much. Yeah, uh-huh. She told me it's because she just likes to hear your voice, to which I made a face, but no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is the final episode of 2022. It is the, I guess, more or less the final episode of our Ed Brubaker miniseries. You know, the first, the last real episode. Mm-hmm. We might have a bonus episode. All I'll say is that Nicholas Winding Refn's Copenhagen Cowboy does come out in January. <laughs> um, just pointing that out for no particular reason. Sure. Which is not... Ed Brubaker has no involvement in, but feels like it could be very Ed Brubaker or mm-hmm. Brubaker adjacent. But yes, we've reached the end of our long road. We're talking about Reckless, the ghost in you. And on the last episode, I said this was a Gin Blossoms reference, but it of course is not because it is Reckless, follow me down, mm-hmm. not follow you down. Sure. So, pie yeah. in my face, as you like to say. I do like to say it, and I like to have it as well. Sure. So, he really cracked it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the degree, I mean, I feel like we kind of got a hint of this with um, Destroy All Monsters, which I feel like on the episode we were like, this one seems better than the other two. I would say that these two are way better than any of the first three. <laughs> I don't think it's a coincidental that n- neither of these ones really are focused on Ethan Reckless as sort of like the emotional driver of either of the stories like i think that you know i'm just making observations here just just quoting facts uh but i was as soon as i as soon as i cracked the 
fourth book, The Ghost in You, I was like, ah, so this one, he has eschewed the concept entirely. <laughs> and is just like, I'm going to do one about this character. Yeah, what if I did I one about yeah, this, this more interesting character? And also the fact that Ethan then appears for like two panels. I was like, the perfect use of him to like emerge from the shadows carrying a baseball bat. Like <laughs> that's, <laughs> I don't really want to be with him for a whole story. I want to be with him when he comes out of the shadows holding a baseball bat. It is like, I feel like they would do this, like, I feel like it's a very, like, Batman thing, mm-hmm. where it'll be, like, this is a, or, like, it'll be a, a villain-centric story, or a Robin-centric story, something like that, and then it's, like, in, like, the last three pages, it's like, oh, no, Batman's here, and, it's, and like, people are always like, that's a cool one, mm-hmm. because it, like, depicts Batman, like, sort of outside of his normal... Yeah, Batman through other eyes. Right, exactly. And so, <laughs> this felt like that. And I think that the book is probably better for it, even though it does seem a little confused about who is narrating the book. Well, I think, doesn't it reveal ultimately that it is Ethan the whole time? Yeah, is that so? Is that supposed to be a twist? <laughs> I'm not sure, really. I kind of... I mean, I guess, I guess if the conceit is that he's, like, writing out all his stories, then it sort of, like, it had to be... So, no, I guess, right? The whole thing, I'm like, I guess, like, it, I was like, I guess I should have known, but it does refer to him in the third person quite a bit. Yeah, you're right. It's like, but it, Ethan but it's was like, out of town. Ethan is going to be so pissed. Um, But it's always like, she thought. No, but it literally, it literally says right here, it's like, it was November of 1989, and Ethan was out of town. Okay, yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little bit of inconsistency here. I guess it's a twist anyways the plot of this one it's an interesting one i (laughs) it did get me in the is this going to be about a good cop (laughs) it did it got me with that as well i was like oh surprise good cop twist (laughs) yeah but yeah so the basic plot of this one is ethan is out of town on a mission for commission sure well actually no that's true. I guess he expenses. doesn't really work. <laughs> he doesn't ever really work for commission. And he specifically in this situation is not taking money for the job. He is right. only charging expenses. He's only taking hearts, am I right? But we'll talk more yes. about that later. <laughs> okay, good tease, good tease. <laughs> Anna is approached by Lorna Valentine, who is like a very clear parallel to Elvira. What, just because her thing is Evelina? <laughs> because she is like the host of a the horror movie show and uh-huh. it looks like Elvira. Uh-huh. And is named Evelina. Is it Elvira? <laughs> right. I thought it was Elvira for some reason. Maybe it is. I'm thinking of uh what's that song? I feel like uh, Everly Brothers. <laughs> or is that just because Everly sounds like Elvery? <laughs> I can't comment on that. I feel like uh Elvira or Elvira or whatever her name is is a bit of like a cultural blind spot for us where it's just like too old and has never really been like brought back to like public consciousness again so it's like sure i know that she like is a thing and i kind of like get her whole thing but like i've never seen like i've never seen something that has elvira in it or elvira or whatever her name is it is the whole thing where it's like she was a host (laughs) yeah which I mean, so is the Crypt Keeper, my dearly beloved. So sure, but the, the Crypt Keeper was like on TV when I was a kid. <laughs> sure, only in animated form, I believe. I guess yeah. That's I guess true. Elvira could have 
been animated. Um, and also, like, she's showing movie. Like, she's more of a mystery science theater, is my understanding. Right. Um, whereas the Crypt Keeper is more, like, that's original material. Right. She's, uh, well, the Crypt Keeper is, like, the MC who then also, yes, presents, like, stories that were made for the Crypt Keeper's show. Right. So that that's one difference. But yeah, I don't I don't know there's a movie, but I don't know where people would have like picked her up. I guess it's just like a cultural figure. And also she doesn't have her own Wikipedia page, which seems crazy. Well, the actress who plays her has her own Wikipedia page. Right. But like don't you think the character should? That does, yeah, that does seem, I mean, it might also be one of those things where, like, the character is so, A, so closely associated with the person who portrays her, and B, like, doesn't really have lore. Like, I feel like there's only so much you can say about the character, whereas, like, there's a lot you can say about the character's, like, cultural impact, but it's easier to talk about that in the context of, like, the actress. Right. I mean... Wow. Oh, this is interesting. So the Elvira movie, it's like, I I assumed that the Elvira movie would be like, it's about the character Elvira. (laughs) Uh It's not like gathering. It is, but it's like, it is like Los Angeles TV horror hostess Elvira quits her job after the station's new owner sexually harasses her. Like it is about Elvira the TV host, right? Like the the media personality, not Elvira the like mistress of the dark. Right. It is not about like a character who has Elvira's like name and appearance, but has lore. So I guess you're right. I guess she just doesn't have any like lore behind her. She's just like I'm just a lady. That's very. It's fascinating. That is very interesting. And there, but there, there is like magic in the movie, but not, she is not magic seemingly. Sure. And it's also about her inheriting a mansion. (laughs) (laughs) That too. All, all true. All true. So she inherits a mansion. Oh yes. So Lorna Valentine, Valentine, AKA Evelina or Evelina perhaps. Sure. Wow, it's gets deeper and deeper. Um, inherits this house, which is like you know famously haunted. I don't. This is not a real place. No, I don't but believe it's so. modeled after like a lot of like Hollywood death stories and a lot yeah. of you know sordid Hollywood affairs. Um, so it's this mansion which was built by this like old movie star, and then he his wife dies, and then he dies, and then. A different family moves in, and there's, like, a famous murder, and then it becomes a Catholic school. So, basically, lots of reasons for it to be haunted, potentially. Uh, and so, she hires Anna to investigate whether it is, or Anna, I guess, uh, <laughs> to investigate whether it's haunted. Uh, there's also a missing dog. She pokes around... At the same time, there's stuff with her mom, where her mom is getting married. She, as we already know, has an estranged relationship with her mom. So there's this whole thing. Eventually, it turns out she stays in the house. She finds out that they're... Oh, well, uh, Lorna Valentine, like, gets hurt. She gets pushed down some stairs. She gets done in. There's someone in the house. She gets done in. And Anna becomes a suspect. And then she goes back to the house to try and find her camera it turns out that there are people basically like squatting in the house who are looking for this alleged treasure that the 
old movie star. Uh, I believe his name is Lazio Lamour. Laszlo, isn't it? Maybe Laszlo. She finds those people. She gets stabbed. She goes to the hospital. This cop who has previously been like poking around reveals himself to be a good cop and shoots <laughs> them. But then when she gets out of the hospital, she like does some more digging and finds out that the cop is a is a friend of I think I don't think she realizes that she the additional digging that she does after she gets out of the hospital is into like Laszlo Lamore and is like, oh, he actually did maybe have some money hidden in there. And then she's right. like, mm-hmm, is, now I'm piecing it together. Yes, there's this element of the treasure, which like Laszlo has treasure like hidden in the house somewhere. They say, oh, she gets tipped off by this cop who is like, they said they found the treasure, but there was no treasure there. She realizes, in fact, it, uh, this good cop, Perry Wilson, has in fact been an accomplice the whole time. It's actually a bad cop. He killed these people in order to basically like dispose of anyone who could implicate him and not have to split this money. Anna pulls in, I did it 15 minutes ago thing where she like reveals this and then is like actually i already broke into your house and found all the information and when he gets inside of course ethan lawless has returned and is waiting for him with a baseball bat so wait hates bad cops he hates bad cops and this guy has done a good cop bad cop one man version so at least half of him is hated (laughs) i don't think good cop bad cop is usually like one of them like i guess one it is one of them plays by the book one of them doesn't well, I guess that's true. It's not usually like the bad cop isn't usually like, I'm going to embezzle money from the police station. <laughs> okay. He, the, my question about this was, did she pull and I did it 15 minutes ago? Or did she tell him that I she pulled and I did it 15 minutes ago to, I guess, I guess it's not really clear either way. My assumption when he like went inside frantically searching was that it was like, haha, she tricked you into like implicating yourself and like admitting you were involved, basically not a like, aha, she actually does already have it. And she tricked you into going inside to get hit in the face with a baseball bat. Well, there is a, I don't think she tricked him to go going inside. I think Ethan was just there as the backup, but I think she did really trick him. What we find out is like, so the big thing was that the, this cop, Perry Wilson took his, her camera because it might've had photos of him on it. And then we find out later that the, that she didn't actually have any photos of him. So like she couldn't prove that he was there basically. Right. But then it's just like, and I kept those to myself. (laughs) So, but like, so is it that, she did have she got the camera back or and like knew that he wasn't in the pictures so she wanted to trick him into like implicating himself or there's was no, it that there's she, no trick there is no trick she actually did she, steal the camera back and and found the bag of old money <laughs> huh, interesting classic real thing yeah uh, i assume it had a dollar sign on it <laughs> but yes my understanding is there was no trick. She really did like. It wasn't a case of this place is surrounded. Right. <laughs> the cops will be here any minute. <laughs> Although that is literally what she says. <laughs> yes, but that's what I'm saying is that she, even though she says that, I think it is real. Right. Okay. And then she she goes to her mom's wedding. That's a whole thing as well. Uh, Evelina becomes the host for 
the movie theaters movies, the midnight movies, and then we get a little stuff about talking about how everyone died or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. R.I.P. Oh, oh, yeah, I guess we do. We do hear about how uh, various people died. Yeah, Evelina got lung cancer. R.I.P. Evelina. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So that one. Good. Yeah, I mean, I think that some of the things that I had trouble with are still sort of present. I think the I main agree. thing is like the length, I think is just a weird length and it's kind yeah. of problematic that you spend, you know, 30 pages, 40 pages sort of introducing the central like plot of what the book is going to be about. You spend... I don't know, 30 pages on, like, an initial investigation, 30 pages on, like, actually, it's this, and then 30 pages on a climax, and then you're basically done. Yeah, I do think it is also a recurring issue in these books, how frequently they end with, and then someone explained to me what had actually happened, (laughs) which is like, which is like a fun trick every once in a while, but I feel like a lot of these have ended with like, and then someone explained to me what was actually happening, which, yeah, to me, that just screams like I didn't have enough space to like let the investigator discover what was happening in a way that it wouldn't feel like someone just explaining what happened anyways. So I'm just going to have someone explain what happened. Right. I mean, I, I think for me, the main thing is like the way in which it resolves itself, like they always feel very quick yeah especially in this one it's like we get like a two page like we just basically get two splash pages where it's like and here's the full story of the characters who are like ostensibly i know the the real like actual villain ends up being this cop perry wilson yeah but we do just get like it's like and here's a quick two pages on characters who you basically never knew to exist although you know it's seated it's seated more it than seated. it is in other books potentially yeah but it still feels a little bit like, and there's this as well, and then we're just going to kind of move on. I, I do think that the issue with them has always been that for the length, they're just, they're like too complex in terms of like the stories that they're telling, where again, right. not to like constantly compare it to Parker, but again, he does invite this. But in those ones, I mean, it does sometimes similarly feel like episodic in a way of like okay here's this like antagonist that's introduced and the end of the story is like parker kills him and like gets his money back or gets away with his money or like what have you but it works because there's not also these secondary plots of like and parker's also got this complicated relationship with his mom and (laughs) uh like his partner is out of town which means that he's like having to do a thing he doesn't normally do. And like, you know, these, these extra elements, which I understand why they're here. And again, as I said, with some of the last ones, in many ways, I prefer those elements of the book to the actual like mysteries um, in, in a lot of senses, but because they are all in there. Yeah. Like you said, like we, we get introduced to like Blake and uh, Stacy via like scratchings on a wall (laughs) and (laughs) don't really know anything about them until one of them is already dead. And the other one is like going to jail. And then it's literally like three pages of like, and then the detective explained what their whole thing was to me (laughs) while I lay in a hospital bed. Whereas like 
if it was a little bit more focused on that, then I think that learning learning like Blake and Stacy's story herself and and like giving them a bit more time before all of a sudden they're stabbing her <laughs> like makes them more interesting and more yeah just just like richer characters and i think also makes like the reveal of officer perry as like an old friend of theirs and an accomplice also like subsequently more impactful whereas in this again it feels like a similar kind of like ironic denouement of like and actually he was also involved yeah, that's a that's a fair point. And I guess we didn't really explain the, the story, which is that Stacy was one of the students or like the people at this Catholic girls' home that these nuns were running in the mansion. She gets pregnant by this local boy, Blake. Um, and then I I thought this was going to be like uh, they were living in the walls. I thought it was as well. I actually what I really thought it was going to be was that the guy who left Evelina the house had not actually died. He had just like staged his death mm. so that she would move in and he could like stalk her from inside, like the secret passages within the house. That's good. But yes, the whole thing is so like Blake goes off into the army. He goes into Vietnam War changes him as it often does. And then basically like by the time they, they sort of like reconnect and they are both like homeless junkies at this point, not to, denigrate them (laughs) but uh and then they are like what about this treasure we should go and get this treasure and i guess perry wilson was involved as well yeah because because he knew them that was like yeah what it boiled down to i guess yeah yes because he they both him and blake both grew up in the same yes they're both local kids yeah uh but yes like you said this extra emotional sort of story about Anna and her mom, which is also like, we just got the story about the bad boyfriend in some ways. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously it's a very differently portrayed story with Anna and Dimitri, but it is like, we just got a bad boyfriend story where it's like, the boyfriend is bad. You can't see it. This is annoying, which I feel like you're just like, never good. Like I hate a I know they're not friends, but I hate like a friends fighting storyline. And that annoyed me in the previous book as well. But yeah, I think it, not to go ahead, but I think it does work a lot better in the next book where it's like the emotional storyline is so interwoven with the primary storyline that it's like, you know, you can't really distinguish the two. It's not like there's an A plot and a B plot. Yeah. It's just like this, it's all mixed together. And I think that provides it a little both like it gives it more space without it feeling like a diversion and then it makes the um like i mean we'll talk about the ending of follow me down which is just like it's like it's crazy how much better like the last 25 pages of follow me down are to like every other part of the book Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i do yeah i think that you're right that having the emotional plot line connected so directly to the like the case as it were is a strong point of that that is missing in this one i also just think that there's a bit of a structural issue with these ones where to not like explain the emotional stakes for like stacy and blake 
until after like everything has happened basically like in some ways that's very noir that like it would be like the climax is like this guy you've never seen before stabs you and you're like what's going on who is that guy why did he do that and then like you know the last little bit is basically like here's who that guy was and this is why he did that and like it also explains you know the the mystery that you're here to explore blah 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 but it just takes like you i think you do you just need more space if the goal is to unravel the mystery like this where it's like it's because the house has this whole history and like you know each kind of step in the road of the history is such an important part of like how we got to the situation that Anna is investigating where it's like oh the paranoid guy hid his money in the house um like the next owners after that are how it came to be in the possession of the person who currently lives there. The time that it was like a, a Catholic school basically is what, like how the antagonists know about it and why they're interested in it. Like you can't really do away with any of that stuff, but it's like unraveled so slowly considering how little like space there is in the book that, and it's also harder to do because she's investigating it. But I'm like, if this was like the heist story about how, you know, Stacy and Blake decided to go after the money. You could cover that stuff in like three pages to be like, this guy lived here. He hid money in the walls. We heard about it when we were kids and Stacy was going there as like a Catholic school. Now it's like owned by this lady who inherited it from like this guy, blah, blah, blah. We're going to go in and get it. Like you can do that super fast. And then like, things like and oh she's like called in this private investigator you don't have to like have this whole backstory to how she decided to like hire a private investigator things like that so yeah i mean again all all this to say like it's either too complex a plot for a book this short or it just needs to be restructured so that the kind of like key operating details are established at the top and then we have any investment or care at all in knowing who these two people are who like appear out of nowhere to try and stab Anna. Yeah. I'm sort of thinking about now that idea of like in the noir, you're right that it's like the villain is often unseen. It's often like it's a plot of trying to uncover who the villain is rather than like, but then even in this one, it's like, I'm not only trying to uncover who the villain is. I'm like, trying to uncover that there is a misdeed. Yeah, like, why is why is there a villain in relation to this at all? Yeah, like, is there anything wrong here? Like, has something happened? And we don't really get anything having happened until, like, halfway through the book, which, you know, is naturally going to be a little bit underwhelming. And I also think that maybe there's something in the way of sort of how the book is constructed from, like, an emotional perspective because I feel like noir tends to be like quite misanthropic and quite cynical in its worldview maybe. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think the way I think that when you have those moments, it's sort of the idea of the world is kind of cruel and like uncaring in that way that a villain will just be someone you did. Like it it sort of is anti-climax in a way that, you know, we've talked about previous books sort of having that that it's not a reveal it's not a twist it's not something that is sort of melodramatic in that way Mm -hmm. and i feel like having such a cynical sort of view is a little antithetical to what it wants to do like 
he talks about wanting it to be a pulp book, wanting it to be a noir book, but I don't think he really <laughs> has it in him, I guess. <laughs> because I think we talked about this in the Parker ones where we were sort of admiring the way in which Parker was like unsympathetic and yeah. the way that he could just create a story without being like, and here's the scene where and Parker's at his apartment, and there's a stray cat that comes by. Yeah, Parker's heart is gently warmed. <laughs> yeah, there, like, there's something to this guy. It's like, no, there's nothing to this guy. <laughs> yeah, the, I thing, don't the think... thing to this guy is that he really likes money. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it takes a lot of, like, gumption to do that, and mm-hmm. I think it also means sacrificing some things in terms of a through line and an arc for a character, like, if you don't have an emotional through line, you're not going to get the stuff that, ha- like, can follow me down. Mm-hmm. And so you do definitely lose something there as well. But I think it sort of tries to have it both ways. Or maybe it's trying to, it's trying to evoke something that it doesn't actually want to be. Which is, I think, sort of the theme of this. Because, you know, we talked last episode. It continues into this episode. The way that he just, like, sees something or remembers something or hears about something and is like... That could be a story, mm-hmm. but it's less like he's sort of thematically adapting the ideas that he's presenting and more that he's just like, that could be a germ right. of something for a story or a character or whatever. Yeah, I I do also, again, come back to like, I think that a large cast is difficult for him, just like generally speaking. And for a book, again, like this, that's 144 pages where you have like, Anna, Lorna, Anna's mom, Anna's mom's fiance, Stacy, Blake, Perry, you know, Marlene, and then like Dimitri's back through here a little bit. Ethan is poking up a little bit. Uh, and then like the neighborhood Byron, people. The yeah, fire in the movie guy. There's so many people who like come up at various points that uh, there's there's like no way that there's enough space in the book to spend serious time with anyone other than Anna, which is great because Anna's great, but it does mean that the villains are ultimately like pretty nondescript and forgettable because it's like how how many pages does Perry even appear on? Like eight maybe total? And so right. it's just hard to be like, oh, it was Perry when it's like Perry's barely in the book. Like... <laughs> And again, like I, yeah, I, I, I do like how that character is sort of seeded throughout. I, I do like that, but yeah, I mean, again, it's it's just difficult. It's like, how am I supposed to like care that much about the story of Stacy and Blake when I don't find out about the story of Stacy and Blake until it's over, basically? Um, and I think that he just like, again, back to back to the Parker books. But I think that Westlake had an ability to kind of like construct characters who were like distinct and interesting and memorable knowing that he was like i'm never gonna like use this character again like this this guy's not like coming back he's here for one scene to like sell parker a gun or to like be the mook that parker knocks out or whatever but he was okay with like kind of building a very quickly uh like rich and memorable character and then being okay with sort of like discarding them and it feels like the characters who are going to get discarded just don't have very much that make them feel memorable. And then the characters who aren't going to get discarded, yeah, are are the ones who like get a lot of attention, even if they don't actually have a very important role to play in this story. Yeah, I just that made me think of the the woman who's 
the woman who sells Parker the guns, I assume is who you're thinking of as well. Well, there's a, there's like a million characters like that. There's like the old man who has them in like the game boxes. <laughs> right. There's like uh, there's like this taxi driver in the first one um, that I often think of. Uh, there's like yeah, there's there's a million even like his partners. Like some of his partners are recurring, but a lot of times yeah. his partners will come up and it's like you're not gonna like I'm gonna kill you at the end of this book. Uh, like we're not going to be precious about it, but I'm going to make sure that at least like you are a distinct personality within it. Yeah. I think, I think there is something to the Stacy and Blake thing. I feel like that's the main thing that we sort of are circling around that, because I think it is intended to be a red herring in some ways, mm-hmm. albeit one that gets resolved very quickly. Yeah. I think there's just something to the idea that, we never get to like talk to them while they're alive. We never hear anything out of their mouth. We never like understand. Like we don't get any chance to understand. Any, we don't. I don't think we they see any dialogue. Maybe like a couple of lines. Yeah, we get. I think Stacy shouts, "Blake, no!" <laughs> yes, she says, "Get back, stop, Blake, no!" And that's like the extent of it. And so I think that is maybe an issue, but then it's also like, in some ways it's like, well, maybe they were never supposed to be mm-hmm. important characters. They were supposed to just be red herrings who sort of, we have them and then they're gone. You know, but yeah. And like tragic stories like this are a dime a dozen in a town like this sort of like feel. Sh- sure. And I, maybe it, part of it is like the length specifically, which is sort of what you were getting at, I think where it's like, there are two full pages devoted to this, which on the one hand is not that much, but on the other hand, for characters that like will never matter from this point onward, is like it's kind of weird you're spending two pages on this. And I guess it's sort of just that you wanted to do those characters a little justice rather than just having them be like homeless people who are instantly shot and then maybe like get some passing mention. Yeah. But it's a weird amount of time to be spending with them. Yeah. And even, yeah, like again, even just like the history of the house again, I feel like the, the treasure angle of it needs to be kind of like hit harder because I just kind of like kept forgetting that there even was like a treasure aspect to it until people, because the whole thing is like, Oh, the ghost, the ghost, it's a ghost story, like, et cetera, et cetera, which again, maybe is the point, but it just doesn't feel like it never feels real enough that it's like, I believe that two people would be like, there's they're like there's money in these here walls, basically. And like would would go searching for it when it's like one of like eight different urban legends about this house. Right. Yeah, I guess that that's the thing, is like it gets set up so heavily as it's a ghost thing, and then it's like, you know, there was some money and that kind of it's hard to know what we should be. I guess that's the whole thing is that it's hard to know what we should be focusing on, what we should care about until like the whole thing is sort of laid out for us. And that sort of makes it a little whiplashy, but then at the same time, it's like, I like the way it's plotted. I like the way I like the way the character reoccurs. I like the way that the Blake and Stacy stuff does sort of get seeded throughout. I think it maybe just needs, I just wish it didn't feel so much like it's like 120 pages of not nothing, but like stuff that ultimately doesn't matter that much. And then at the end, someone explains what was going on. That just kind of annoys me as like a story structure. Yeah, it does 
take its time. Like the whole like there's this the scene with the psychic where she gets the psychic to sort of come in and investigate the house for vibes. That's like I'm, I'm gonna count up how many pages that is in a second. But the and then like the scene of her investigating the mom's new boyfriend. It's like there's like a four page scene with Frank, the retired CIA agent, mm-hmm. who's like he's a great guy. FBI, please. But it's like is he not CIA? He's FBI, baby. Didn't didn't uh it's the didn't Federal Reckless work Baby for Institute. CIA? No, he's FBI. Sure. CIA can only okay. do international stuff, allegedly. Allegedly. Haven't you ever seen freaking Sicario? I have, yeah. Great, That's why they great twist there. in that movie. That's why they brought it there. Yep. A couple great twists. Yep. Yeah, but there's like you know, there's like a four page scene with Frank the FBI agent, and it's like that's cool. I love Frank the FBI agent. He has good vibes. Worried he's gonna die soon. He doesn't seem well. Mm, no, he doesn't. His wife's got him eating freaking kale. <laughs> Epic kale. <laughs> but the amount that we are hoping to get into the book does not seem commensurate with I spend three pages talking to Frank the FBI agent. I wish if she was going to if, if the conclusion of the book was basically going to be like someone explains to Anna what was happening, I want there to be a little bit more emphasis on like Anna's out on her own for the first time. And she's kind of like trying to figure out how to be an investigator. And she's like trying to challenge herself and see if she has like the investigative skills to overcome this stuff then like it feels i guess it feels more okay for me for the ending to be like she did her best and she did like figure some stuff out some stuff had to be kind of like handed to her but she did figure some stuff out on her own and it's like okay that i I don't know it just makes it easier for me to like tolerate that a big part of the exposition comes with someone explaining the mystery to her. And then she's able to use that to solve like the other mystery that we didn't really even realize was there that like hits better for me, but there's so little of that kind of like Anna is doing something that's different from what she would usually do. Anna's stepping into a new role kind of like stuff that, yeah, that, that, I don't know. It just feels like that's what's missing that would also help me feel like this is a bit more complete or a bit more kind of like consistent as a story. Yeah. And then the whole the mom stuff, I think that I don't know. I don't feel like there's much there ultimately. Like, I don't think he really, you know, we've talked about his ability to write women. Um, I don't think he has like the best handle on a mother-daughter relationship. Like, I don't know if that's the right area for him to be working in. There doesn't really seem to be much there. Like, there's not a lot of catharsis out of... She doesn't really seem to evolve, Anna, this is, like, Mm -hmm. over the course of this. We get this sort of conclusion at the end where she burns the film roll that has the pictures of the mother's fiancé drinking. And then she's like, let mom make her own mistakes, just like always. And there's a bit of a thing where it's like, oh, she did go to the wedding, but it, it doesn't, it's not a satisfying emotional conclusion to that story. And then there's, you know, there's a little bit of, I think, I think it's trying to seed some emotional things that get paid off in the next book. Like this sort of idea of the, like the sort of bitter sweetness of love sometimes, the impermanence of like a relationship and whether that ultimately matters in the moment and things like that. Mm -hmm. But 
it, on its own legs, I feel like it doesn't really stand up. I think it feels more like it's seeding the thing it's more interested in, which it should be. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I do think that like Brubaker especially in his independent stuff, kind of like uses these stories to in some ways like do therapy, but also just sort of like to process like his memories and in some ways to like capture a vibe more than to tell a story. And I think that the mom aspect of this, like the way he speaks about it in the afterword, he says she's kind of a combination of many mothers from that generation, mine and a lot of my friends. I've seen that dynamic between mother and daughter or son a lot, especially in the 70s and 80s. The, uh, the child ha- sort of half raised by themselves, feeling like they have to take care of their parent. My generation was possibly the first to deal with widespread divorce. So that probably contributed to a lot of it other than that, uh, other than your parents just being human like everyone else, I guess. And it feels to me, again, kind of like what you're saying, where like he gets this idea for sort of like a germ of a story. Like it feels to me less like he's like, this is going to be like a character development piece for Anna this is really going to help us like understand who Anna is or anything like that and more so sort of like well I'm trying to like you know evoke that my my like memories and experiences of like the 70s and 80s and I remember so many like parental relationships like this so Anna's going to have a parental relationship like this that I can use to kind of like capture the feeling of you know, the disaffected youth of that era and capture the, in the same way that like in the next one, he talks a bit about like, I knew people who had, who had like grown up in these weird kind of like commune slash like caravan situations. And I amplified it for this story in the same way. I think he's like, I'm amplifying a, a negative relationship, not like beyond the realm of believability, but like, because again, I'm trying to ca- like capture a cultural moment more so than I'm trying to tell a story about my character, Anna. Yeah. And not to armchair therapist as we often like to do, but like, it does feel like there's an element of like, I haven't processed this. And so <laughs> I therefore cannot like write a story where a character processes it. I mean, he does say, I should point out that Anna's mother isn't based yes, on my yes. mother. <laughs> it's not It's not a direct one-to-one. But I think, like, you know, I, I think that there probably or could be a certain level of resentment that is, like, extant that, like, he doesn't know how to write how a character would, like, <laughs> emotionally resolve that. Well, I mean, it is also, like, I think one of the outs of working so much in crime fiction and especially like noir influenced crime fiction is that there is this sort of idea that like nobody is really happy and like capturing the brokenness of the human condition and like the tragedy of being alive is all kind of like part of what people come to these books for and so if it was the story of like and that's how Anna like healed and her relationship with her mom was great people would be like boo and it's no, like and I'd, I'd rather have it that. be like oh pe- like it's it's more crimey and more noiry to be like people never change sometimes you just gotta like decide whose mistakes you can live with the best yeah and I don't think I want that like where it's like they kiss and make up but mm-hmm. And I guess we already know that Anna's going to die. So, you know, we can't really have like a later, but even just a like sort of like later, Anna would XYZ, like either something like something something would happen years down the line. She would come to understand something. Mm -hmm. And it 
kind of tries to point towards that, but I don't think we ever really get anything definitive about that. Well, there's like the whole Evelina relationship as well, where there's like that moment mm-hmm. where she's like, what if I was Evelina's daughter? And then she's like, well, that would probably just have like its own problems. But then Evelina again does become this sort of part of their like their their little found family for her like later years. Yes, there's that as well. Yeah, and I guess there is a certain extent... It is also a very noirish thing, and I get maybe a little like stand by me to be like, like Perry Wilson was stabbed <laughs> <laughs> and moved to Alaska. He did famously move to Alaska. So yeah, like I said, I do like this one a lot better than the first three. I would say I I think it's just enjoyable to watch, and especially because like she is maybe more of a natural investigator mm-hmm. than ethan like she's more of like a teen detective almost yeah Whereas although ethan, like, at this in- point she's probably like in her early 30s right yeah she is she is like 30 yeah but she always feels like a teen to me i feel like yeah that's true but yeah i mean like compared to ethan where in the next book <laughs> ethan's method of investigation is like i'm gonna drive up and down the highway <laughs> until i find what i'm looking for and is like straight up like I don't really know how to get information out of this guy that I can't punch. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good as well. Yeah, it's true. I do prefer the focus on Anna. I do think that like, as I sort of uh, alluded to with destroy all monsters, that these are coming together as like a cohesive whole that I probably enjoy more than any of the individual entries. <sighs> yeah. I think it boils down to me ultimately to like, I wish these were in a different format that they were either longer or serialized because I like the stories. I like the characters. I like the ideas that are like ultimately in here, but I feel like the format puts constraints in a bad way on how they can tell the stories. And so you end up with a lot of stories, which I think these two episodes demonstrate is a lot of us being like, how could you fix this so that it was like more satisfying? Yeah, it, it all it all feels like it just needs like a little tweak. And I feel like the little tweak is often I feel like I feel like we're often more saying, pages. Like, <laughs> yeah, like we're often saying, like, I wish that he had devoted more time to this. I wish we got a better explanation of this. I wish we got a more satisfying through line to this and so it's like the solution to all of those is just like spend more time with this and you know i think even like i mean even is a relative term but i think like 200 pages it's like you're still sort of keeping it at a manageable length mm-hmm. and not you know so you can still churn them out more or less yeah an manageable length even sure i guess but then you're also adding like 50 pages which is a lot of pages yeah it is a lot of pages and I guess like at the end of the Much day, like NBC better, better too short than too long, I guess. Sure. I mean, it's like, I, it's also like, I trust you, Ed. <laughs> like, yeah, I do. I do trust you, Ed. I mean, we'll, yeah, we'll talk about his career. I'm sure a little bit more once we have finished the second book, but I do, I do trust you, Ed, in the realm of crime fiction. And yeah, I feel like also some of these stories make me feel like it might be time to kind of like push yourself again and like, spread spread your wings a little bit yeah and i think there there is a case to be made that he does start to do that a little i think in the final to this date reckless book october 2022 i'm so used i'm so used to this book wasn't out when we started this series 
Yeah, exactly. I'm so used to things having come out like a minimum of 10 years ago. <laughs> or like even Saga, I was like, this was in like 2018. This is crazy. But then this one is like, this just came out. Like, this is a new book that we are essentially reviewing. Like, it is close enough to the time that we can call it a new book review, basically. Mm-hmm. It says, follow me down the fifth reckless book. And don't mind if I do. Yeah, I will. I'll follow you anywhere. I will follow you into the down. Sure. So the plot of this one, it's much simpler to explain, which yeah. is probably <laughs> it's probably a sign. Basically, one of Ethan's like friends from the neighborhood wants him to investigate the case of his daughter-in-law who has disappeared. Both his daughter-in-law and his son are ex-junkies, um, so there may be a connection there. Ethan investigates. Uh, he gets the sense that there is some connection to like a previous sexual assault. We eventually find out that this woman, Sarah, Rachel, terrible with names, right? Why did I think Sarah? Um, oh, right, because of course their names are Joey and Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> I don't think he noticed either, because, like, I don't think that's something you notice and then don't change. (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, Joey and Rachel could never, although I suppose they don't in the end. (laughs) They did once. Well, yeah, Yeah, they did once, but also, yeah. But, like, long-term, married, settled (laughs) down? Heck no. So, basically, the long and the short of it is we eventually find out there is this gang called the Brickman Gang, which is basically <laughs> the Brickman like, Boys. Like, you know, a few decades ago was sort of this roving band of, they call themselves Land Pirates, who basically just, it seems like, drive up and down the coast of California, mm-hmm. like, robbing and stealing wherever they go. Um, and then there's also this sort of element, you know, we go back to the hippies, there's this, like, free love element. It's like a polyamorous relationship between the patriarch of this clan and several women. And then, you know, we're meant to understand sort of by an extension of that or by this like trauma that is like being inflicted on these children. There is also sexual assault taking place that Rachel was a victim of at the hands of all of these different, you know, members of this ersatz family. So she is now going on a revenge tour where she's going to kill everyone. She eventually meets up with Ethan, who is like, I understand and like approve of this, basically. He sort of starts to join in her quest. They eventually do find the patriarch. He turns out to be going into like federal custody because they have sort of like pulled a fast one on him by (laughs) saying that. The cartel is the one doing these killings, yes, not Rachel. The feds, the feds have like capitalized on the fact that they are like doing vigilante stuff to be like, uh oh, you better like turn state's witness before they get you. Right, exactly. At the same time, Ethan and Rachel have started a sexual relationship. Uh, and eventually, basically, Rachel leaves, which is the same thing she has done to Joey. Uh, and then we get this coda, which is crazy, <laughs> that said in 2004. <laughs> Ethan is in his 50s. He looks crazy. He has a he big does. beard. He just surfs all He's day. He's seen better days. No sign of Anna. Yeah, well, I think we are. forms in my eye. 
I think we are already know or are meant to understand at this point that Anna has died. I guess I assumed that he was writing like when we got the reveal that it's like Ethan is writing these books. I was like, it must he must be doing that in 2022. Yeah, which maybe he is. And so when he talks about like, oh, Anna died too young. And I'm like, well, Anna was already like 20 years younger than you. So I, I, I wasn't. I mean, obviously, it becomes very clear yeah. very quickly, but I was like, 2004, it's not like a guarantee, but right. also she clearly is. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, it for me, it's just like, A, I assume that, like, we're going to see her die. Yeah. I assume that it's also going to be related to why he, when we see him in 2004, has been out of the whatever he does business for a little while. Yeah, I think they say the theater has been closed for five years. He sort of talks about how, you know, it basically wasn't I don't the same do that after anymore. Anna died. Yeah. So we have a rough timeline of when Anna passed away. Um, so he is basically just like a hermit who just surfs all day and hangs out. Hangs 10, if you ask me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Rachel appears and says, like, basically, I finally found this guy, this patriarch. I forget his name. Porter. Porter Brickman. Yeah. Sure. Porter Brickman. Um, they finally find this guy. They break into like this care home where he is staying. They find out that he has Alzheimer's, which is like why they were able to track him down, basically, and are like, well, obviously, this isn't worth it. Well, Rachel says that even is like, it's <laughs> <laughs> like, do you want me to kill him or what? <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this sort of coda where they sort of rekindle their relationship. It's not like a happily ever after exactly. But, you know, there there's something there. Um, and then Ethan says we live in a society. <laughs> Ethan does say we live in a society uh, before breaking a guy's freaking fingers. Yeah, Again, an good. edge and darkness to him that is missing from the first volumes, I would say. Yes. The sort there's of- a lot less in this that's like, I'm actually not that good at my job. And more of like kind of allowing him to be the kind of character that I'm like, this guy can carry a series. Like he's, I still don't find him to be like the most like shining example of that kind of character, but it is nice to see him just like be good at what he does and what he does isn't very nice. Yeah, I guess the main thing is I I think he can carry a series if we're not so deeply wrapped up in like the head and the emotions of this character, because I think he is awesome as like. He is basically like a, a stone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like he is the perfect like entry point to be like, let's let's enter this like, you know, crime situation through because like because of his weird lifestyle and how he ends up in these situations. He's going to be the vehicle that we travel with to these characters and situations that are more interesting. And at the end of the day, he's going to be like the blunt instrument that resolves it. But it, like in between that beginning where we arrive on the scene with him and the end where he like wraps things up and we leave with him, he's going to be our portal into these other characters who are actually kind of like the more interesting part of the story when all is said and done. Yeah, or certainly like the more emotionally like resonant parts of the story. Yeah. Because I think that this book also does a really good job of sort of weaponizing like in a way that we haven't seen before weaponizing his characterization of I'm a guy who doesn't have feelings except for anger. And we see more of that here. We see the idea of like 
I will do something stupid when I am like overcome by my anger because it is like my only only emotion and can become very potent. And then also the idea of like, I am an emotionally muted guy and it takes like a lot of effort for me to like come out of my shell basically. Mm-hmm. And I think it uses both of those ideas to very great effect in this relationship. And I guess we basically just have to see him in a relationship with someone in that way because his whole the whole point of his relationship with Anna is sort mm-hmm. of like he doesn't ever really get vulnerable he doesn't really like display that side of himself and so yeah. having a character that he is like intimate with allows that those sort of elements of his personality to like yeah. be examined more closely yeah. yeah i do think that like as I think Anna is a great character, and like like I said, in some ways I prefer <laughs> to read about her than to read about Ethan. But I do think that this book kind of demonstrates that she can also be a bit of an anchor in terms of like it's hard for him to have that kind of like American Ronin is how I characterized it last time, but that kind of like wandering loner, you know, adventure where each, you know, each installment finds him in like a new town and a new situation when he has like an established home base and a person who like maintains that home base for him and is kind of a partner to him. He like is ultimately always going to be getting drawn back to that. And then having that as sort of the most significant relationship in his life means that anything that is sort of outside the bounds of that relationship is not going to get explored very much unless he is like removed from her because obviously he's going to be, she's going to be the person that he goes to, to sort of like talk about what's going on in his life. But when he's not able to like explore his, you know, his trauma or his emotions or what have you within the confines of that relationship, then he's just not going to do that and, and hasn't done that really in the previous books, except for sort of like, ruminating on it through his narration yeah and i think that that is like often when the book is sort of like at its worst or (laughs) at its least effective because it's like i don't want to hear ethan ruminate ethan's so stupid (laughs) like not stupid but like emotionally stupid yeah he's a clod (laughs) he's a bozo a cad but yeah like like i love anna i would gladly read like a whole series of like reckless books that were about Ethan and Anna's adventures with Anna as the central character. But if Ethan is going to be the central character, I feel like he almost needs to continue to find ways to sideline Anna in order for me to be like interested in seeing Ethan in those other situations, if that makes sense. Yeah. And there's a way in which it's almost more interesting I mean, I'm thinking of other scenes in other books as well, where it's like, it's almost more interesting when Ethan has to do more of the legwork, Mm -hmm. both because, like, we get to see him in different situations like we do in this one, and then also because, like, he's not probably as good at, at it as Anna would be, the fact that he kind of has a tough time with it and has to, like, go through a lot of work to find out what he's looking for, like, I think that makes it more satisfying when he gets there and then like we said before like this is a much more streamlined book like it is for basically two major characters (laughs) yeah and for a huge part of it it is just like he is driving around investigating things like there's a there's such a big chunk and it does allow itself to breathe in a way that we often don't get with these books 
that that becomes so much more interesting and you feel it so much more when he's like just like he's driving around all day he's like in california which is a very like specific and evocative setting Mm -hmm. but also like not like you know he's not on at the beach he's not in hollywood or whatever he's in this like sort of specific type of california which we have seen depicted before but you know feels a little fresh and not as sort of movie-ish maybe and then you know it lets it sit in that for a little bit and creates a sort of a vibe and a setting more successfully yeah just like to go back to how streamlined the story is he it's not him investigating like oh what happened to rachel we're like told at the start, like, this is what happened to Rachel. And so his investigation is focused on like, first I need to find Rachel and then I have to decide whether or not I want to help Rachel do what I basically already know she's doing, which, yeah, just again, makes it feel less like it makes it easier to feel invested in the investigation, even though the investigation is much more boring than the investigation Anna does. Because like you said, it's literally him driving around to motels being like, have you seen this car? But it's so much clearer what he's trying to accomplish in looking for the car. Whereas with Anna, what she's trying to accomplish is like, what's going on? <laughs> Which is like, it's just hard to get that invested in what's going on when what's going on, what, what is going on doesn't seem to be that strange beyond like you know the, st- the the baseline strangeness of it i guess like as strange things go like someone seems to be intruding in my house is not that strange of a strange thing whereas when it's like we know what happened to rachel and we know what she's doing basically by like fairly early on so his investigation is less about like what's she doing what's like what how is he going to figure out like what she's doing and more so like what is he going to do when he finds her which is like a more interesting question to ask about a character yes and i think that the first scene you know sort of like the like prelude which he does a lot mm-hmm. i think it's so much more effective oh yeah it's so evocative because it's like at this point it's like okay we know there's a woman uh, we know it's rachel actually yeah. um like, we know that Rachel is going around killing people or killing someone. And so at the very start, it's like when we hear about Rachel, it's like, oh, wow, like she's killing someone. Like, that's weird. She doesn't seem like she would be doing that. So mm-hmm. there must be an explanation. Like, whereas in The Ghost in You, I looked back and it's like the, the opening is just like, I got stabbed. How did I get stabbed? <laughs> and it's like... The answer is the only way someone turned a corner and stabbed you. <laughs> <laughs> the only way to resolve that is just like who got who stabbed you, basically. Whereas with this, it's like it gives us information. It it puts us a little bit ahead of Ethan in some ways, where it's uh-huh. like, oh, we know what Rachel's up to. Like that's crazy. Yeah, it lets the like why did it why did she do that is like the first question, and it's answered quickly enough that it lets him move on to like, so what are you going to do about it? Which is really what drives like the rest and the best parts of the book. Yeah, and I think that you know it sort of takes it steers away from the sort of usual noir of the main characters in the dark the whole time. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have the full picture, but between what we see and what he knows, we have enough of a picture to be like, I want to, I want you to get there. I want you to like both. I want you to find out sort of what we already know. And I want to see what comes out of that. Whereas I'm never like, I'm never reading the ghost and you being like, when's Anna going to get stabbed? 
Yeah. Just like, yeah, at some point this is going to happen. And like, that is, I think, a development for Brubaker in some respects, because we talked about definitely with Incognito and maybe with Fatal as well, that like, he sometimes struggles to use dramatic irony effectively. And it's like very annoying to like, have it be like, we, the audience have been told something by the narrative. And then we also have to sit through a scene of like the characters learning the things that we already know. Like that has been something that he has kind of done before and usually not very well. But in this case, like, yeah, I agree that like, while we already kind of are ahead of him in some respects, like we also don't know why she did it. And so his investigation isn't like a frustrating slog of like, he's trying to figure out something that we, the audience already know. It's like he, he's taking a different route, but we're both like looking for the same answers basically. Yeah. And it's also like, we're not so in the dark that it becomes impossible to sort of like guess or figure out sort of how the path leads towards a certain destination. Mm -hmm. It's like, we already have part of a destination. We know that there's like, we know that someone's getting killed. And then it's, and I think the way that it sort of parses it out is so effective. It's like, he finds the letter and then we find out from the letter, like there's a guy and he did something bad. And like, I think, you know, and it's not hard to make that leap, but yes, for me that I was immediately like, Oh, it could be this. And then he goes to the jail and it's like, well, we get a little more where it sort of confirms this suspicion that we might have had that there's like sexual assault as an element. And then it's like, there's a brother. And then we go to the brother and the brother's dead. And it's like, oh, now yeah. we're starting to put like, it teases that out so effectively and like makes us sort of follow along with the investigation. And we feel like we're on a trail rather than like stumbling around, around blindly and sort of like, we're not as subject to Ethan's whims. Like mm-hmm. we always know where to go next in a way, in, a, in like a way that, you know, might feel a little more like I'm thinking of like video games now. It's like more <laughs> linear or more like handholdy sort of, but it's like, I don't want to, I, you know, in a video game, I don't necessarily want to like fumble around blindly because the game has not like given me enough information on where to go. I think that it's nice to sort of have that, like, every sequence sort of leads into the next sequence and it gives us information so that we're like still on the hook, but we're not like giving it all away. So we're just waiting for the conclusion to happen. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's crazy how much better it is. It's so good. (laughs) Um, And then as well, in addition to the story being, having a stronger construction, you have like the emotional construction, Yeah, which is, so much stronger, especially in the ending, which you know we'll get to shortly. But this character of Rachel is so complex, and you know makes such a good counterpart to Ethan, who is so like simple, I think, and understandable. That a character who does things which are like counterintuitive or don't necessarily have a logic to them. That I don't. I guess that's sort of what we were complaining about before, <laughs> but like that coming from an emotional place rather than a detective like story place yeah maybe makes a difference yeah i agree yeah and i also do think that like as brew baker acknowledges in his like afterward the like childhood sexual abuse as like an origin story for characters is like a well that he goes to surprisingly regularly but it's often like we don't really see those characters then. I'm thinking of like, um, 
I can't remember the character's name anymore, but like the, the actress who dies in the fade out, you know, it like she's, she's dead before the first like page. <laughs> um, like right. we don't, we don't see her beyond that or it like is revealed about these characters as a big, like this was like what was from their past. Can you believe it? And it's like, well, I've been reading a lot of Ed Brubaker comics. So yes, I <laughs> can believe it. And I think that like, because he avoids ever framing it as like, can you believe it? And then also like centers the story around like, it's like, even though the whole story is about her, like reacting to the reality of her abuse, it's somehow not her like defining characteristic. And I think that is because what Ethan sees in her is not like, Oh, victim of abuse. It's like, Oh, another person who like, when she sees like wrong things happening, she wants to like take action. Yeah. And he sort of has like, you know, in, in almost a killer be killed way. It's like, we know what's, it, it is sort of a similar thing where it's like, we don't need laws to tell us what is right or wrong because yeah. we already know what is right or wrong. And we can just act on those instead of having to act on laws. And I think another thing is like, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of try ever try to like titillate with the, abuse like i you know not that i think like people usually intend abuse to be like exciting but i think it is like there's a tendency to sort of to have you know if there's going to be abuse it needs to have shock value like we need yeah, to like see you need you need a gross like close up of like the abuser like grinning and saying something gross so that you're like hurry then kill him yeah i like i need to be so disgusted like, I need to see this so that I can understand how disgusted I'm supposed to be. Whereas this, like, it is more, it feels more like, like, it feels more like a trauma than it feels like something like that visceral or in the moment where it's like, we do feel like this happened a long time ago. We do feel like it's like, there, it's like a scar rather than a wound, I guess, is yeah. like the way the frame it. Like, we when we see the character, we don't see a victim. We see like someone who has been scarred and is sort of like trying to overcome that in her own like very strange way. And then you know that sort of creates an interesting sort of question of morality of like, you know, how like what is the right way to like overcome that? Like, is can we really sort of judge her too harshly for like? overcoming her trauma by in this way which is like obviously not like moral necessarily but does have this sort of sense of justice to it that we can understand at the very least Mm -hmm. like we might be asking my lord is that legal but (laughs) whether it's legal or not (laughs) ethan does kind of say i will make it legal And this book is really the definition of this is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. (laughs) That's true. That's very true. Um, Yeah. I'm just thinking back to the like guy from the first arc of criminal who like is sent out to kidnap the daughter Delron. Do you recall Delron? (laughs) (laughs) He loved to leer. (laughs) He loved to leer. And he is like the kind of guy that usually I feel like is around in pretty much all stories that touch on like childhood sexual abuse and definitely like Brubaker is no exception as far as that goes case in point Delron. (laughs) And so the fact that there's no one like that and we don't really like we, when we hear about the abuse, we hear it from 
Rachel talking about her memory of it and the like impact of it on her rather than seeing it depicted or like not seeing it depicted, but like seeing it led up to in a very ominous and suggestive way. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm looking back at it now, like there's something kind of like beautiful, the, the way, you know, we've seen this before in killer be killed and in this, this sort of like splash page with like a full, line of narration and so Mm -hmm. like the full we get the full story on one page and then the image is just this splash page this really beautiful splash page of like the van parked in yosemite and it's like a wide shot we don't even see their faces Mm -hmm. and we get the full story like through this image which is very like you know removed from the situation to some extent like takes a wider lens rather than sort of like mining the emotions so blatantly in that way that I think people often try to do. Yeah. And just to cap off my point earlier about like when I read this instantly, I was like, Oh, well this is his version of like a rape revenge movie in the vein of a, um, what's that? Jennifer's body. What? Have you seen that movie? (laughs) Uh, wait, drag me to hell. No, wait, what's the one? We're thinking of the same one. Is it not Jennifer's body? I don't think that that is what that, is about i do think that that is it because she she gets like murdered by this band and then she comes back to life and is like watch oh, out I've for seen me that movie i it's think not, it's not drag me to hell but it sounds like drag me to hell i spit on your grave sure is, uh, the one i was thinking of which is like a very I think famous... jennifer's body also qualifies okay i will co-sign uh it is not on the wikipedia list i will say but so there's this movie, I don't know if you've heard of it, I Spit on Your Grave from 1978. It is like the very, like, very much the quintessential rape revenge movie. And and the whole thing about this is that, like, there is, like, a 30-minute extended rape scene. And the whole idea is, like, we're going to see how awful and, like, evil this rape is. So then, like, we're cheering for this person, like, you know, it, and it, as the name implies, uh-huh. she then... Spits on their grave. and goes on to kill them and spit on their grave. And so, you know, it, it's almost... Can't help but notice that the character's sh- name is Jennifer. <laughs> Just saying. Okay, and she does. But yeah, like, it's sort of... I think it's almost trying to justify itself. Like, it's like, oh, like, to make it okay for her to kill them, we have to like depict how awful this is and how evil this is that has been inflicted on her so -hmm. that it is like fair. Whereas this, it's like, it doesn't have to be fair. And we don't have to like recognize that we don't have to agree that what she's doing is like the morally just outcome for us to like understand the character and root for the character in some ways, even, you know, as Ethan does, like, I don't think Ethan would choose for this to be like the way that it goes down, but he does like recognize the justice in what she's doing. And that's why Mm -hmm. he sort of helps her as well. Yeah. Like he even, he has the like indecision at first to be like, I can't decide whether or not I should like basically drag you back to LA or to hell. Yeah. (laughs) Or to to hell (laughs) or like help you finish this. And of course he ultimately decides I'll help you finish this, but so yeah, the best of the reckless books by far, I would personally say. Yeah, and I their relationship is interesting because we never quite understand. Like, I guess the what we were meant to understand is like 
they understand each other in this sort of elemental way because, and we, I guess we get a, like a more explicit explanation of that later that like we have, they are, they just understand each other in a very, on a very basic level. And that like creates this intimacy between them that like they can't really find with anyone else. What? Oh, I'm just reading Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's blurb for the ghost in you. <laughs> okay. Reading this graphic novel is like watching great film noir. If you liked The Maltese Falcon, The Long Goodbye, and The Rockford Files, you will definitely like this. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> Cheers, Kareem. Kareem's the uh, best. Kareem is the best. That's just such a surprisingly like bland endorsement, I guess. It's I feel like, like I do if you like didn't if you couldn't end that with dash Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, <laughs> they would be like, What else did we get back? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Kareem can be a little bland sometimes, but it's like, it doesn't matter because he's still like operating so far above mm-hmm. any other like professional athlete in the intellectual world. True. I mean, we also have, I love this book dash Damon Lindelof. So. <laughs> <laughs> Same vibe. Uh, it's better than that for sure. Or like Pat Oswalt being like, it pushes my buttons. Yeah. 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 But yeah. So, I, you know, and in a way, I sort of like that what I what I think I really ultimately like about this book is like it is almost all about an unwillingness to offer up like easy answers or easy mm-hmm. like A to B. Because I feel like so much of comics is thematically explicit. Like we've talked about the idea of a comic not having themes. And I feel like when a comic does have themes, they can often be quite explicit, quite clear, have the character explain themselves at the end. um, Have another character explain it at the end. (laughs) I feel like, you know, we saw it a lot in Tilly Walden, I think. And then I think, especially in Killer Be Killed and this, it creates this moral ambiguity that I think is so effective. And not just moral ambiguity, but like emotional ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Because I think that there's something to this little postscript where they you know with the older ethan there's just something so effective to it for me like it's one of like my favorite things in like anything that we've read where it's like the way that it depicts a character like at this stage of their life yeah and and i think there's an element of it too where like as we talked about in the last episode like ethan is positioned as a character who is like asking to be described by the Damon Lindelofs and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's of the world as morally ambiguous. But like in those first three, and he's not really in the fourth, he's not that morally ambiguous. And in this one, he feels like he actually is a little bit morally ambiguous where like the decision to be involved with what Rachel is doing is not like the clear cut, like right thing. Anybody would do that decision. And like the very last scene where he tracks the guy down to like break his fingers is like the kind of like danger and menace that I felt that the character was really missing in his like younger incarnations where it's like, yeah, it was like obviously not good that that guy like hit and ran a dog, but to like hunt him down and then like tell him you're going to break his fingers and then explain why and then be like, and now I one by one break your fingers is like probably not how I would choose to deal with that situation. And it does feel like everything prior to that 
I don't know, maybe maybe he would have done that in the earlier ones, but it just would have been it would have been presented with a lot more narration, I guess, is the main thing. It's true. With him like explaining why he's actually right and somehow like undercutting how brutal that actually is as a response. Yeah, and I think a couple of things that that made me think of. One is you sort of talked about the idea of his moral ambiguity, and I think a big part of that is that he is now being positioned as the voice of reason, whereas before it was like he's like the brutal guy who is relating to characters who are like reasonable and like normal and good for the Mm -hmm. most part, like his allies at least. Whereas in this one, he has an ally who is like darker than him and he is the light side of the coin rather than with him and Anna, he is very clearly the dark side of the coin. And I think that sort of creates a dynamic that we haven't seen before that it makes the character much more interesting where it's like he, it sort of examines his code and it's like, well, what are are you going to do? Like, mm-hmm. how does this operate within your sense of justice? Yeah. And then well, also... And, and I think shows his darkness as well, where, like, it feels like in the first few volumes, his darkness is more so talked about, whereas, like, when he goes sicko mode, as soon as he sees, like, the person being human trafficked, it's like, that's an understandable response, but... Like, we just haven't really seen him sort of, like, get completely unhinged in that way previously, where it feels like it's something that, like, is always talked about of, like, oh, he's the only thing he feels is anger, and you better watch out when his anger, like, gets off the chain. And it's, like, because he will, like, kill someone in (laughs) (laughs) self-defense. Yeah, Yeah, and that's what, that's exactly what I was gonna say, is, like, this, the finger-breaking scene, and then also that scene as well, like, We've only really ever seen him, like, A, use violence in, like, a justified situation. Like, we there's, like, the recurring door number three joke where it's, like, yeah. I have two no-win options. And so I'm going to go with, like, this third option, which is violence, because it is the only reasonable option presented to me. If you think and about it, he also, did wake up and choose violence. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> um, and then the other thing in this finger-breaking scene is, like, we see the idea of disproportionate like justice or disproportionate violence that we haven't seen before. Like before it's almost like basically all the characters he interacts with are like, he could kill this person and like, that would be okay because yeah. they are like a bad person who kills people. Like com- contrast with like, can you believe he freaking murdered Wilder with a hatchet? It's like, the guy who came at him with like a huge machete. Yeah, I can believe that he murdered that guy with a hatchet. Can you believe he killed Magnus Erickson? <laughs> the, like, the Nazi Nazi cultist. <laughs> uh, yeah, good book. Yeah, and it's just yeah, I I love the character of Rachel. Like I love the way that she's portrayed. I love that. And to finally see her out from under Batman's shadow is really refreshing as well. And from Ross's. Yeah. But not Joey's. (laughs) Well, and Joey's eventually. But yeah, it's just like, as it, for someone that we have sort of talked about him, like not necessarily writing like the most, you know, we've talked about him having strong female characters, but maybe not necessarily like, complex female characters mm-hmm. and i think anna would almost fall under that as well where it's like it's a strong female character but it's not necessarily a complex or like a overtly female female yeah character. yeah whereas with her like i don't know i find her so interesting i really like the character 
I like how I like I like the moral ambiguity. I think I think we've sort of seen in Killer Be Killed in this like he is so much or like not so much better, but I think better than almost anyone at juggling like moral ambiguity within a character. Mm-hmm. He just needs us, this like, like space to actually work with that character and this trend that we've seen, especially in like kind of the later stuff of having these giant casts. I'm just like, I don't understand why you want to do this when your intimate books are the best ones by such a wide margin. Yeah. Like you can create such interesting characters if you're just given time. Like I think the lead of his books are almost always so interesting. Mm-hmm. Shout out and Charlie then, Parrish. Sure. Uh, <laughs> And then also, like, he has the ability to create these, like, very interesting and specific characters if he just, like, gives himself the space to do so, like you said. Um, so, yeah, really good. This is definitely, like, and it's weird because this one is sort of connected to the previous one because it's sort of we're seeing this, this other side of the the thing where it's, like, Ethan's out of town. This is what Ethan was doing. And as soon as I saw that they were doing that, I was like, that's a cool idea. Yeah. But yeah, but the, I, I, this is almost the one that I would recommend people to just read sight unseen. Yes, I do think that they are building towards something that like I assume they're probably yes. going to do maybe another full five. But I would say there's probably at least like two or three more in the bank. And I do think that when all is said and done, they will form a full cohesive story that is better than the first three volumes, especially, and and especially, especially the first two volumes. But for the time being, when they do function as these sort of standalone adventures, like I do think that it's to the benefit of the books that for the most part, you can pretty much hand this to somebody and be like, what do I need to know about this? Pretty much nothing. Um, and they could read it and enjoy it for what it is. And, and like, as far as that goes, I do think that this is the strongest standalone. And I don't think that that's only because it has the four preceding volumes to kind of like stand on. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that it's almost like the the books get better the more he deviates from what is ostensibly like the long <laughs> yeah. line of the books. <laughs> like is the that pitch. like the pitch being like these are like pulpy disposable in a good way kind of like noir books but it's like no like the more serialized these get the more character focused they get is like when they get better <laughs> and so it's very funny that like he doesn't he doesn't seem super predisposed to writing characters in that way which is interesting because i wouldn't have said darwin cook was predisposed either but i think part of it is like the adaptation element of it like we talked about last episode yeah. like having the sort of responsibility or ability to adapt material and not have to like, like we said, he can sort of resist his own impulses to like soften the edges of it because he feels like he has a certain responsibility to the character. Yeah. Uh, Good books. We talked about these for long as I was (laughs) anticipating. I thought this was going to be a a real shorty, but of course no awards information on these because their hour in the sun has not yet come. Don't even know if they're yeah, nominated well, for anything. Has to have the nominations come out? I don't think so. Because they usually do it in the they usually do it at San Diego Comic Con, which is in the summer. So I don't think right. they are out yet. So these would be the 2023 Eisners for yeah. Right. Because Destroy All Monsters was a nominee this year. Yeah. And that came out last year. Okay. 
So we will report next year on <laughs> if there's any uh, Eisner info. That's cool. It's nice to be talking about something current for once. But yeah, and you know, like you said, still sales stuff is still kind of yeah. I mean, at this I point. mean, follow me down is too recent to have the sales numbers yet. I right. think. Um, so again, a rare, <laughs> rare situation where it's like it's too new to to answer that question. I can't remember when the Ghost in You came out. What month that was? Like, was it March? Yeah, I think it is. That like March. might be available. So the only thing left to do, I think, is to rank our Ed Brubakers. So, or to rank a couple of things. First off, because we ranked all the criminals, I thought that we should rank these ones as well. And then also to rank the entire Ed Brubaker oeuvre that we have covered. So I sort of, the way that I propose it to you was sort of just to take each thing as a whole. So the way I have it written out is like... Like all the, all the criminal stories are grouped together in criminal. All of the X Men stuff is together in X Men. Both of the Incognitos yeah. are together. All of the Reckless stuff is together. Yeah, so it's yes, not like striated or distinguished by which episode we covered them or anything like that. Yeah. It's like if it has the same title at the top, it's under one banner. Yeah. Um. So you have your Reckless rankings. I as do. do. I. Would I think like they're going to gonna be very similar. <laughs> I think you might be surprised. Oh, all right. Let's find out. At number five, I have Reckless. At number five, I have Friend of the Devil. Uh, at number four, I have Friend of the Devil. At number four, I have Destroy All Monsters. Uh, at number three, I have Destroy All Monsters. At number three, I have Reckless. <laughs> at number two, I have The Ghost in You. At number two, I have The Ghost in You, which means that we have the same number one follow me down i mean you don't mind if i do (laughs) uh yeah mine are just straight up in reverse chronological order which i also think is telling (laughs) (laughs) that is quite telling so shall we get into our rankings of the brewbakers do let's why don't you start us off for this one all right my number 10 is incognito my number 10 shout out to the book without themes is uncanny x-men slash x-men colon deadly genesis my number nine is x-men my number nine is incognito my number eight is fatal my number eight is reckless with apologies to the stronger later volumes my number seven is the fade out my number seven is fatal my number six is iron fist my number six is The Fade Out. My number five is Reckless. My number five is The Immortal Iron Fist. Okay, so we have the same top four. Yeah. My number four is Velvet. My number four is Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. My number three is Criminal. My number three is also Criminal. Okay, interesting. My number two is Daredevil. My number two is Velvet. So we have the same number one. We do one. indeed have the same number one. Killer be killed. His finest work. It's official. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm not that surprised by that. I think the killer be killed episode is one of our like most positive episodes. It's true. Ever. It's almost entirely like admiration. I think there's probably like the the um 
like the Earth Story issues of Zot, I think, is another episode where it's pretty much all like nonstop. We love these comics so much. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It wasn't surprising to me based on how we talked about them. It's surprising to me based on like what the comic is. Yeah, I agree. Like, I agree with I'm that. I'm sure at the time you proposed this miniseries, that is not what you would expect to have. I I knew that I was very high on Killer Be Killed because it is a newer one. And so I had read it like, you know, in the past couple of years. And I knew that I like rated it pretty highly. I would not have guessed that it would be number one. I th- I'm sure I would have guessed at the start that Criminal would be my number yeah. one. And criminal is hard because you ha- like, especially in this situation, I think criminal yeah. is hurt by having to take the entire franchise. It is a franchise, basically yeah. having to take that all under one roof, which which reckless taking- also is for me. Like if we sure, were if we were ranking but- the recklesses individually, there would be some reckless entries yes. much higher up. Well, yes, yeah, certainly follow me down. I think would be quite high for me, but. Reckless at least is like a series in the same way that like the fade out or Daredevil yeah, that's is true. like that's true. It's one story, yeah. whereas Criminal is like different main characters, different time periods, different this, different that. Yeah. So it is like you you there are more vast fluctuations between the good ones and the I wouldn't say there are bad ones necessarily, but you know whatever ones. Yeah, I agree. I mean it it is like. As I said, like I have Fatal ranked number seven, a comic that I really like slash I straight up love it in in many respects. So I, I feel like we always have this little disclaimer of like being ranked near the bottom of this one. Now, I mean, this one does have some that you couldn't pay me to read again, <laughs> but but being ranked like in the bottom half of this doesn't imply a bad comic or a negative reading experience no. at all for the most part. But the stuff at the top, like, I do think that, like, yeah, Killer Be Killed, Velvet, Criminal, Daredevil are all sort of examples of why he has carved out this kind of position for himself as, like, the the, the king of crime comics, basically, in the modern era. Because when he's at his best, these are stories where, like, the plot elements, the character elements, and, like, the storytelling elements all, like, snap together perfectly to yeah to create these stories that just just work basically at every level and i think the variety in here as well as far as like criminal obviously is a straight up crime book velvet is a spy book daredevil is like a superhero book with like a bit of a noir kind of like accent and then killer be killed killed kind of defies uh... categorization (laughs) (laughs) but i do think that like when you say like oh he's like the crime guy that seems like a small box but that sort of variety kind of illustrates yeah how much variety there actually is within kind of like the box of crime all that being said like as i mentioned earlier i do think that like He's in he's in a bit of a sort of like workman like era in some respects, I think, where uh, that feels a little ironic to say, because, like I said, he's producing some of what I would consider to be the best work of his career. But it the, the crime genre feels very comfortable for him to me in ways that I think the early reckless books especially kind of demonstrate, like if it gets too comfortable then it's not that they're bad comics. It's just that I'm like, you are capable of more than this. And if that means that like, you need to leave crime behind for a bit in order to like 
hit those heights more consistently, that's something that I would be like okay with. Yeah, and it's interesting because like I don't think you know, I think you would still say Killer Be Killed has crime elements, obviously oh, definitely, has yeah. noir elements. And so I think that, that he has sort of found his wheelhouse in that way. Um, and, you know, I I don't think he's suddenly going to write like a romance comic or like an <laughs> autobiography. I mean, a no. lot of his comics are autobiographical in certain ways, but I don't think he's suddenly going to pivot to that. But I see what you're saying. And I think like the fade out is a good attempt to sort of put a new spin on it. Although that one is maybe like the most noirish of them all yeah. in terms of its structure. But like, I think... I think he keeps coming up with these new sort of ways to tackle it. And, it, and Pulp as well, that's like a Western, right? Um, I haven't read Pulp, so I can't uh, can't really speak to it. But I was only looking, I'm only looking at the cover, I guess. Yeah, it certainly has a Western-inspired cover. It's got that cowboy on it. So it's set I think it's set in the, in the it, 30s, right? It's set in the 30s. It's about a Pulp writer from New York who finds himself... He finds himself drawn into a story not unlike the tales he churns out, tales of a Wild West outlaw dispensing justice with a six gun. So, does sound Western ish. How much there is actual Western, or if it's, I think the idea is sort of like it's, there's like interplay between the hit, the Western story that he's writing Uh versus the actual normal like new york city kind of pulp right that he has found himself embroiled in is the idea yeah now i will say that like if we have issues with the length of this one i seem to recall that pulp is like yes. 78 pages or something like yeah, that it's like it's, it's the very same as my heroes have always been junkies yeah it's very short which might might be better like we did talk about this as well with like criminal at one point a bit where it's like sometimes getting even shorter lets you streamline it in ways that are more satisfying but it is, yeah, it is quite brief. Have not yet read it myself. It does feel similar in a lot of ways to the fade out. And I also do think that like modern crime comics are basically just like evolutionary westerns. Like they have a lot of the same tropes sure. and themes and images. So, you know, yeah. there there's that, that element to it too. And I think that based looking now at this list, I think a lot of what is great about Brubaker is that he can write pulp stories, but I think, you know, oftentimes I think that the failing of a pulp story is like the sort of lack of a main character with like a character behind them. You know, obviously there are exceptions. Like I think Parker does a great job of like creating a compelling character without really having a ton of like meat to draw on. But mm-hmm. looking at my top ones, it's like Killer Be Killed, Daredevil, Criminal, Velvet. I think those four, it's like, those are four really, like, I mean, criminal, obviously, it varies depending on the book, but, like, really compelling main characters, characters you want to sort of follow through their various situations. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he's so great at creating those characters, and that is sort of, like, the reason that his books have, like, some staying power, some impact, some something, is because, like, stories are, like, very good but i don't think they're like blowing your mind and then it's it's putting those compelling characters into those stories that makes it really shine yeah i mean in the same way that like the parker novels are successful because they like embrace formula i think that he is smart to not try and like 
like if he was trying to like trick the audience or have every comic he wrote have like a big reveal or like reinvent the crime genre every time he like picked up his laptop <laughs> um <laughs> Then I don't. Yeah, then set it down on the desk and began to tip tap away on it, um, just like the rain on the rooftop. I don't think that he would be held in as high regard as like the king of crime comics, which really is like his reputation. But I think that he's able to do that because he recognizes that crime, like the the crime plots of which there are like many, but also very few, have their inherent strengths and their inherent limitations. And instead of trying to like fix them and turn them into something else, he's like, I'm going to overcome the limitations by putting characters who are genuinely like memorable and interesting into them. And like, that is kind of like what it, what it takes to have a crime story that transcends being very disposable. That's what I think that reckless in its first couple installments felt like it was lacking. And what helped these like later ones kind of boost it over that hurdle is like, Oh, these are starting to feel like interesting and memorable characters who are in these plots that again are like sometimes a bit formulaic, sometimes a bit predictable. Um, you know, not, not like the the newest freshest thing you've ever seen but it doesn't really matter because it's like i don't really care about these plots beyond them being vehicles that put these characters that i'm invested in into situations to do something cool or say something cool or have like an emotionally effective experience and as long as one of those three things is happening i'm probably going to be satisfied yeah and that's interesting because you know he gets talked about a lot and criminal particularly gets talked about a lot as like it's a deconstruction of the crime genre and things like that. But I think really ultimately what it is, even going all the way back to coward is like, it's a, it's a formulaic or standard kind of crime story with an interesting spin, maybe unusual, maybe unique character at the center of it. Yeah. Um, and you know, sometimes there are spins like I think killer be killed is like more of a deconstruction yeah. of what it is then like the cr- then criminal is a deconstruction of crime comics like, i agree I yeah think killer be killed is a sort of a superhero deconstruction in an interesting way but yeah i think that that is sort of like what how he does what he does like he's not like a formalist like he's not interested necessarily maybe he is to some extent but i don't think he like you said he's not trying to reinvent the wheel with every comic he puts the character first and the the way that the character is different from like the way you expect a standard character in this in one of these books to behave is what creates the sort of deviations and deconstructions. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I think that he's also like I guess an underrated facet of this is also working within the setting where again like he kind of applies what I described in one of the episodes as like the superhero logic of like, what if this, but in real life, he's used to that kind of thinking. And so with the different settings that he's built, thinking about it in terms of like, what if this kind of fairly stock crime story, but happening in this place to these people that allows him to turn it into something that does feel different and feels fresh. And I think, you know, we see that, it's it's like very clear like i said the the best ones have the strongest central characters the lower down ones often have weaker central characters and i yep. don't think that that's by accident 
Agreed. Good stuff, Ed. Good stuff, Ed. Good on you. We have <laughs> devoted a <laughs> large amount of time to talking to about you. So, uh, yeah. thank first you time for cracking it. double digits since Vaughn. Yeah, it's been it's been a ride. Uh, I felt like we would never get to the end, of the time, <laughs> but we did uh, on time, no less. It took a, took a double to to get up, but we made it to the end. Do we want to talk about the future? Sure. Well. For starters, as retribution for giving you a double episode on this, the three days after Christmas, whatever that (laughs) day might be, we are going to be taking a couple of weeks off. So the first two weeks of January, there will be no new Got the Runs episodes. You know, feel free to go back and listen to our annuals or uh, (laughs) revisit your series of choice. But there will be no new episodes on January 4th or January 11th. On January 18th, we will be making our triumphant return with something of a Brubaker postscript slash annual. We are going to be covering, I think, a specific episode of Tool to Die Young. Yes, my that was my thought that we will cover... I believe, just so people can watch it because it is as long as a movie, it is episode five, The Fool. If you, if you, I imagine no one will watch this, but (laughs) if you do watch this, like, I would just say, don't try to, like, necessarily understand it or follow the plot. There is, like, an overarching plot, but Nicholas Winding Refn famously said that they could be watched in any order, which is psychopathic. (laughs) Um... So the plot is not like hugely important. There you go. Uh, so we will be covering episode five of Tool to Die Young, The Fool. And that's on Amazon Prime. On Amazon Prime. Shout out Jeff Bezos. Um, totally. Uh, if you want to get curious, us as an Amazon Prime music exclusive, you know the email address. <laughs> what? Does Amazon do podcasts? They must. Probably. I guess they've got like Wondery uh, or whatever. Is that an Amazon thing? No idea. An hour and 16 minutes is the length of this episode of television, The Fool. So we will be talking about The Fool uh, for our episode coming out on January 18th. And then after that, we will be diving into a brand new miniseries. We are going to be getting uh, elbows deep back into the world of superheroes, but not necessarily the superheroes you might be used to maybe not the ones you might always expect from old marvel and dc we are going to be uh covering the icon the seminal creator the founder of the milestone universe Dwayne mcduffie so that series is going to cover just to go over it quickly his runs on damage control deathlock um his milestone stuff particularly uh hardware and icon but some static and blood syndicate stuff as well his run on fantastic four and finally his justice league run so be excited uh for that he is not a guy i have read very much of before but the influence of the milestone stuff is so difficult, I guess, to like overstate. And he's so, he's so, I think like unique in the comics landscape that I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting into some of this stuff and tackling stuff that's very different from the brew baker that we've been steeped in for the last like five months. <laughs> so no more steepage, no more seepage. Uh, get excited for that. Yeah. Until then, thank you for listening 
like I said up top, tell a friend if you don't want to see me be sad. Five stars, etc. wherever you get your podcasts. Got the runs pod at gmail.com. Got the runs pod on Twitter. Check those out. David is always doing good posts there. He needs some more love. <laughs> I frequently even post when we have a new episode coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you post interesting stuff, though. Sometimes. Don't, uh, don't shame yourself. Um, of course, you already know what's happening next week, which is nothing. So until we meet again in the new year. To be continued. One of our most interesting yet. Happens. Tis the season to be jolly <laughs> yeah. and joy. Yeah.